Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest to have a discussion about physician associates and prescribing, which is a huge topic and it will be of interest, I think, to lots of physician associates, PA students and those who work with physician associates. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. You want to introduce yourself? My name is Neil Howie. I'm a physician associate. I qualified back in very early 2011 and I'm currently the course director for the physician associate program at the University of Worcester and I'm currently also working on the faculty of PAs working group preparing a case of need for prescribing for physician associates which the department of health has asked the faculty to start the preliminary work on that and i'm also doing my phd part-time on pa prescribing just for anybody listening to the podcast who might not know just to set where we are at the moment physician associates are currently an unregulated profession we have something called the managed voluntary register which is held by the faculty of physician associates at the royal college of physicians which Physician associates can join when they've passed their national PA exams and has some fitness to practice mechanisms and a code of conduct, but actually doesn't have any power. There is no statutory force of law behind it at the moment, but we know that that will soon be superseded by regulation from the General Medical Council, the GMC, which we hope will be in about 12 months time in late 2022. So it will have powers to enforce who is on the register and to investigate fitness to practice issues, to set the educational standards for physician associates moving forwards, and to look at other things, one of which will be prescribing. Is that a fair assessment of where we are at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's definitely where we are. I guess one of the common misconceptions or false understandings of what GMC regulation might mean is amongst some of my PA friends and colleagues is that they assume once GMC regulation kicks in, we can just sit a prescribing course the next day. That's not true, is it? No. So only professions which are designated as such in the um, Human Medicines Regulations 2012, uh, which is a statutory instrument, only regulations specified, uh, professions specified in there are actually allowed to undertake a non-medical prescribing course. So it does list them. I mean, it starts off very much as the professions being invited, being allowed to start put forward a case of need, and then it goes through a, a Department of Health and Social Care process, which ultimately leads to a political decision by ministers, and then review by the necessary authorities like the Commission on Human Medicines, um, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, if controlled drugs are going to be involved. Then legislation needs to be written by the Department of Health. And then if controlled drugs are in, there has to be home office uh, input for anything like opioids, anything that's uh, controlled, public consultation. So it's a, a long process. It's been set out by the Department of Health. They have actually just tweaked it a little bit recently and removed one of the consultations. There was two originally, so now we're down to one, but it's still lengthy. So what form prescribing will take is what we're currently working on through the case of need, which the Department of Health has asked the FPA to start working on, but that 
as I said before, can't be taken forward officially for consideration until regulation has been enacted. So, no, nobody's going to get to just go and book on a non-medical prescribing course as a PA once regulation's in, sadly. So, in basic terms, once regulation comes in, the next step is then to do the consultation on what form of prescribing is needed and to change the law so that we can become prescribers is what happens next. Yeah, it's you can break it down to several parts. There's... Um, development of a very detailed case of need we're working on an outline one at the moment at the moment that goes through uh, an iterative process so we've just submitted a third version so each time we get feedback from various bodies such as the royal college of physicians health education england the department of health particularly uh, nhs improvement it will almost be that we've got that document ready to go, that case of need ready to go to start the formal official process. Okay. So it's fair to say a lot of work has been going on in the background on this to get us to the point that once we're in a position and we're regulated, we can press on. It's very positive. I have to say everyone wants us to get there. There's clearly a will for us to to get there. Hence, they're asking us so early on to start looking at it. And of course, the NHS people plan did say that they wanted to start a, the process within two years of regulation being enacted. So they want us to go much sooner than that by the looks of it. You mentioned something earlier in, in one of your answers about um, what form prescribing might take. It's kind of new to me, and I suppose it might be new to a lot of other people. There are different forms of prescribers, different forms of prescribing. Yes. So I think there's a there's a misconception that prescribing is prescribing and that's just it. Uh, if we look at the various means there are to provide, supply, administer prescription-only medications, they're not all actually prescribing. So exemptions under the law, for example, that's not technically prescribing. That just says that an individual who is a registered profession of a set profession is able to administer, supply, request that a supply be provided for a patient of a of a set prescription only medication so paramedics being the classic example a newly qualified paramedic has a list of exemptions including the morphine they can give oxygen fluids etc so it names the drug and that individual is allowed to give it to a patient without the need for an actual prescription midwives have something similar off the top of my head, pethidin is the first one that springs to mind. Chiropodists and podiatrists, because they're performing minor surgery, so local anaesthetics, certain antibiotics, they're all listed in the human medicines regulations as exempt drugs they're exempt and can therefore give. So that's one form. Patient group directives are a semi-form of prescribing in that a prescription has been written by a doctor for a trust approved by the lead pharmacist for that trust organisation. And then an individual who has read and signed on the dotted line, the PGD, is then able to give that drug to any patient that fulfils that criteria that has been set out in that initial PGD. And then you've got independent prescribing itself. So that's the one that we perhaps think of as being the big cheese that we all want can prescribe anything out of the BNF and you've got to be either a doctor, a dentist, or someone who's done a non-medical prescribing course. And that's true to an extent. Dentists have a slightly more limited formulary. 
Um, doctors obviously have the full formulary from pretty much from qualification, although I understand there's certain restrictions on controlled drugs during the foundation year one stage. And then anyone who's done an independent prescribing course. So for nurses, it's often referred to as the V300 because that's the module code that they, they do for the course code. Different professions have a slightly different title for that course. But basically, it gets them that same right to be an independent prescriber. Then there's also supplementary prescribing, which going a bit out of vogue. Not that many people are doing it from the outset. Uh, I think the V300 course allows an individual to be both an independent and a supplementary prescriber. And supplementary prescriber prescribing requires a prescriber to have initiated a prescription and have a plan in place for that individual, a clinical management plan. And then it allows someone who's got the supplementary prescribing course to alter that so they could be written up for a drug only when they reach a certain point so they can initiate it or they can change the dosage or they can stop it if required, but only within the terms of that clinical management plan. Understanding those differences is important when we come down to the how and the why um, later on. You know, what's My PhD is focusing on which of those is appropriate for the way that PAs work clinically on our clinical practice. In terms of setting where we are at the moment, and this is pre-GMC regulation, this is 2021, physician associates can't be independent prescribers, can't be supplementary prescribers, and can't work under patient group directives. We basically can't prescribe anything. Basically, no. <laughs> um, they're essentially, no. I mean, there is a subset of drugs within there that anyone can give in a life-threatening emergency, they lose their prescription-only status. They are listed in the human medicines regulations under Schedule 19, and they include things like intramuscular adrenaline for um, someone who's having anaphylaxis. It's why somebody who's a parent of a child with a peanut allergy is legally allowed to give adrenaline if they're having a reaction. So anyone can give those, but at the moment, without regulation, no, there's nothing. In terms of responsibility and accountability for what physician associates do with medicines and drugs whilst they're at work, how does that fall? Well, legally, we can't, prescribing can't be delegated. In some countries, it is. Just to go slightly off on a tangent, if once upon a time in South Africa, clinical associates, which are the equivalent of PAs in South Africa, uh, couldn't prescribe in their own right. They had prescribing delegated to them, but that wasn't considered to be robust enough. So it was changed. So it's not something that can be done in this country. We're obviously all, despite delegation, we are all ultimately responsible for our own clinical practice. And we have to follow, as set out by the competency and curriculum framework, those things that we're allowed to do. So we can give IM and subcut medications, but they need to be signed off by a prescriber first. Nothing actually says that it has to be a doctor as that independent prescriber. In theory, it can be anyone who's an independent prescriber, but we predominantly go to doctors because that's our delegation model. That's our working model. 
So ultimately, you're always going to be um, responsible for who you're giving the drug to, for making sure it's the right patient, they don't have allergies, all that kind of thing. In terms of perhaps PAs who work in primary care who might, or secondary care, who might propose an antibiotic that needs to be given for their patient or suggest a management plan. Obviously, it's the prescriber who will initiate that and prescribe it for the patient. Yes, so proposing is allowed. uh, And some trusts have um, nice computer system, electronic prescribing systems that allow an individual to propose a medication and then a prescriber to sign off that way. When I worked in general practice, my EMIS system was set up so that it would print off um, or it would go electronically, but we were still using quite a lot of print-offs back then. It would print off for me, but it would actually have the supervising GP's details on there, on the prescription, so that when they put their signature to it, there was no confusion about who it was. But it allowed me to generate that. So in theory, yes, there's nothing stopping us from from doing that and I've done it pretty much all my career Uh, and some uh, x-ray requesting systems allow you to do that as well when I worked in A&E we had a lovely electronic system which is exactly the same I proposed the x-ray I wanted or the CT scan and a registrar above could just pop in a pin number have a look authorize it so legal responsibility for prescribing lies with the prescriber who signs the prescription ultimately yes but PAs who do advise on the medicines still remain professionally accountable for their actions or omissions, and they can't delegate that to any other person. Absolutely. Ultimately, if the prescriber isn't seeing the patient themselves, they are relying on the PA to be clinically adept, honest, trustworthy, uh, and to be given the right information to them in the first place. So it's really important that physician associates themselves retain the working knowledge of local medicines management policies and formularies and guidance. Absolutely. And those are, since I started training, local prescribing guidelines have become the norm. Curveball of a question, but for when things go wrong, like adverse drug reactions, (coughs) allergies, medication-related incidents, near misses, problems with medications... Physician associates can still be involved in reporting those on if it's DATEX or whatever incident management system you use. Absolutely can and should. Professional responsibility that if we've we've witnessed it, we should report it. Not so much to be punitary, but to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Um, particularly if it's an a previously unknown or previously thought to be quite rare reaction to something, then obviously we need to get that yellow card system through the BNF, get it reported, and obviously more formally as we need to absolutely that's as much down to us as it is any other professional PAs obviously need to okay and in terms of PAs proposing medications that might be considered off-label or off-license as long as that's clinically appropriate and they're satisfied that it will serve their patient well I mean speaking from my clinical practice point of view if I was in that position with a patient, it would be the sort of patient I would be discussing with my supervisor or a specialist anyway uh, to be going that off-label. Um, and it may be in those situations that they would be the person who would take on writing the prescription anyway. Yeah. I can't think of 
except with the possibility of some of treating some people for neuropathic pain with pregabalin or something like that. I can't think of many off-label situations, but and then for physician associates, as with anybody, um, the use of anything that's unlicensed, i.e., products that don't have that authorization or license for human use, it's just a no-no, isn't it? It is really. And if anybody's going down that route, they are probably going to be a consultant specialist in their field, and it may well be part of a clinical trial, which, unless you're specifically a PA working in clinical trials, and I know of at least one, um, it's not really us that's going to be dealing with that. Thanks, Neil. It's been really helpful just to get a bit of clarity on where things are at the moment and what we can, can do and can't do. My thoughts are turning towards things like patient group directives and patient-specific directives. As I understand it, a PGD, a patient group directive, is a written instruction by a doctor within an organisation to say, if your patient meets certain criteria, you can give this medication. And it has to be signed for by anybody who wants to be on that list. And they have to be a regulated professional named as being able to be on a PGD in the first place. PAs currently aren't on that named list of professionals, so we can't operate under PGDs. Is that correct? That's correct. So again, it's Human Medicines Regulations 2012. It lists those professions that can be there. But once a profession is added to that list, there's then no limit on which medications can be put on a PGD that that anyone could, could then use. It's PGDs are locally generated by an organization. So it's down to them to decide what they want to put on the criteria for that doctor and the pharmacist, lead pharmacist to agree them, and then to make sure the appropriate training is in place for whichever professionals. And they just record the name against each one. It, it's quite a whereas exemptions can be quite fast. You know, you know, qualifying that this is your list of drugs. These are the ones that you can give, and that's fine. PGDs are a bit more bitty. Each individual drug has to have its own PGD, and it has to have the name and signature of someone who's going to use them that PGD on each and every one of them. So it's quite drawn out in the grand scheme of things. And I know some colleagues, PA colleagues, might be hoping that once GMC regulation is achieved, that they can automatically start working under PGDs. And from what you're saying, it sounds like that's not the case. That's not the case. So with as with all of these things, it requires an amendment to that human medicines regulations. And amendments happen frequently. It's not something that's done once in a blue moon. If you look at the 2012 regulations, there's been... Uh, at least one amendment per year since 2012 to those regulations, including at least one emergency change for COVID. So it, it's fairly straightforward to be done. It doesn't require an actual vote in Parliament, but it does require the minister responsible to make a decision for it to be laid before the House for 28 days for MPs to be able to view it before it then comes into law. Okay. And then running sort of parallel to PGDs is something called patient-specific directives, which is a written instruction by a prescriber for a certain medicine to be supplied 
for that patient? Yes. So patient-specific directions are, it's a bit like supplementary prescribing in some respects. So anaesthetic associates will use them a lot with the anaesthetic drugs. The anaesthetist will have prescribed those drugs for that patient, but it will be down to the anaesthetic associate to change the dosage as they go along to make sure the anaesthetic is complete and appropriate. So there'll be a range in there and the individual practitioner is then allowed to change or stop that drug or indeed initiate it if it's written up in the first place. So it's a bit like supplementary prescribing, but very specific uh, set of drugs and an individual. Okay, thank you. In terms of physician associates being involved in prescribing slash authorising blood components? That would be separate in as much as it wouldn't be something that was pushed into exemptions outright uh, as a first thought. It's something that would have to be considered further on. I think it's something that clearly we need to do from a clinical practice point of view. There are going to be situations, emergency situations, where we will need to give blood products, um, whether that be out of hours or just because of the clinical area we're working in. Uh, Anyone who's worked in haematology, ED, a liver unit, critical care, will probably tell you that blood products is a fairly major requirement. So it's certainly something that, along with the rest of prescribing, is being looked at. And you mentioned earlier, in terms of an emergency situation, there are some drugs that obviously need to be given during ALS or an emergency life-threatening situation that PAs can, in all good conscience, just give to save a life. Yes, it's not really well known. Uh, To be honest, that list isn't particularly well known, full stop amongst most professions but there in the human medicines regulations it says that anybody joe public through to a healthcare professional can give this particular set of drugs it's in i think it's schedule 19 of the human medicines regulations they can give those drugs in a life-threatening emergency so with uh, intramuscular adrenaline being prime example there are such things as the antidote to cyanide in there as well uh, which might seem random as if we're all living in an agatha christie novel but um, in certain plastics and metalworking industry cyanide is used or can be a byproduct of the um, the processing a reprocessing of plastics in particular can give off certain plastics when burnt can give off cyanide so it's okay fine And the last bit in my head that I don't have clarity on is about transcribing medications and documenting medicine's histories. Oh, this could be one where I get into trouble. Um, Documenting medication histories is in itself not a problem. It is part of your normal history taking. What have you taken? What was the dosage? Because that's not transcribing. That is just recording a patient set of patient notes and accurate patient history. The transcribing issue is much vexed um, at certain trusts, and certain trusts seem to be better at it than others. Um, 
How would you define what transcribing is? Transcribing to me is taking um, a list of medications and putting them into a domain where they are going to be approved as a prescription. So putting a list, the patient gives you their list uh, when they've been admitted of their pre-existing drugs and putting them on the drug chart so that they're not missing their medications while they're an inpatient. Um, similarly, writing a discharge letter is seen as, if it includes medications, as, as being a form of transcribing if the PA is putting them on and certain trusts, if not the majority of trusts, don't seem to allow that. Really, our aim is to make sure that newly qualified PAs are prescribing ready. This is a, a phrase which is coming up across, coming up a lot across various healthcare professions at the moment. Nurses are being moved to being, quote, prescribing ready. Um, pharmacists actually, are, by the looks of it, are going to have prescribing rights from qualification in the future but certainly they're being prepared as prescribing ready at this point to then undertake their non-medical prescribing course uh, it'll no doubt move across in different professions um, that have access to the non-medical prescribing course after qualification so physiotherapists um, and paramedics are two that particularly jump out as being other professions that have that so Getting us to a point where we're prescribing ready through our courses, through the pharmacology and prescribing practice that we we teach on courses. I, I as part of my PhD, I've done a, a mapping of the PA CCF, the competency curriculum framework, to the prescribing portion of the outcomes for graduates for doctors from the GMC and also for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's um, guidance on competencies for safe prescribing and also the non-medical prescribing competencies for pharmacists. And we map, the CCF maps to those documents. We, we ha have the same clauses, pretty much or very similar clauses about what we should be competent to do regarding patient assessments, pharmacology education, prescribing education, what we should be competent to do in terms of managing medications um, once we're qualified and the correct selection of them, our clinical reasoning skills, all that kind of thing. They map quite clearly. And so that's something we've been trying to get over into this case of need that actually we do meet those standards we are there already so do you expect in the future pa courses to produce pa graduates that can come into the workforce and be prescribers so our, our proposal isn't to make pas prescribers right from the get-go the plan is to make us prescribing ready and then over 12 months after qualification to prepare to be prescribers. So we've had to put in a couple of options. We can't just dismiss one completely. So we have put in you know, independent prescribing course. That is one. That for us is option B. It's not the preferred option. The main option that we've put forward is that in the first 12 months, a newly qualified PA would undertake a prescribing logbook 
and each entry would be signed off as an appropriate prescription by a qualified prescriber. At the end of 12 months, the educational supervisor would sign off and say, right, you should be able to go forward now and take the prescribing safety assessment, which medical students take at the end of their training. And once they have the individual has passed that exam, the PSA, they should then be independent prescribers able to carry on. For those who have obviously been qualified for some time, it would mean doing, we propose a shorter logbook, maybe six months, and then sitting the PSA. The advantage of that system is we're not having to do a prescribing course and relearn everything we have already learnt on our PA courses in the first place, hence PA courses making us prescribing ready, knowing the pharmacology, knowing the prescribing side of things and knowing the um, patient assessment side of things. Those are all inherent to PA courses. I'm pleased to hear you say that um, because I was slightly worried that there would be a situation where you'd suddenly have 4,000 PAs who wanted to become prescribers overnight and all book onto non-medical prescribing courses that would be completely overrun for years. That was part of our thinking when when we sat down with this. It was, okay, we could go independent prescribing, but trust that we work with for our students, say, what's prescribing going to look like because we can't afford to have all our PAs off the wards for X number of months off doing a prescribing course. What they need is a system without that. And, you know, from a personal point of view, what is the point in relearning on a prescribing course everything we've done in our PA training, as particularly as we've demonstrated it maps? Obviously, we have to have the other options in there. So we've talked about independent prescribing as being, well, if you don't like that option, that's obviously the next one to go with. Feedback has been positive to the idea of a log prescribing logbook and the PSA and then independent prescribing through that route, that from the stakeholders. Would you get 4,000 PAs suddenly wanting to sit the PSA? Is that going to be a, a bottleneck? Well, again, that is, is that going to be a bottleneck? I mean, a, an independent prescribing course, the numbers on the course are, my understanding is, set limited by the General Pharmaceutical Council decide how many can be on that course. So universities would have to get agreement for an increase in numbers, provide the resources for it. Trusts or PAs would have to pay for it Neek. and have people off. The PSA is an online exam, which doesn't have... So a prescribing course will involve OSCEs and it will involve uh, sit-down exams, whereas the PSA is provided centrally by the uh, Medical Schools Council. They have uh, a few practice questions They have that you can access online and they have an online-based exam system. That strikes us as being better more accessible. Go. So 4,000 people all accessing the exam from their home or a Pearson View Centre or whatever, it's a lot more practical than going down the independent prescribing course route. And I yeah. think the PSA is adaptable to it because they have 40-something medical schools signed up to it each year taking the exam. So 
we have to wait for regulation to come first, and then you can make the case of need to the Department of Health. The Department of Health can then hopefully come to the conclusion that physician associates should have prescribing authority and what form that takes. And then there'll be a period of time to enact that into legislation. The Department of Health will put forward the proposal to the Commission on Human Medicines, and if there's controlled drugs in there, also the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, just to make sure that we're not going to essentially open up another pathway to lead to misuse. And then recommendation will be made to ministers. They'll make their decision. Uh, And once that decision is made, then the legislation needs to be created, put forward. That would involve a couple of agencies. I said earlier, it will involve the the Home Office if it involves controlled drugs. Uh, And then that will have, that whole set of proposals has to go through consultation. But all of that process is going to take be very complicated and take a lot of time. If you were crystal ball gazing, I know you're not going to put a specific time frame on it, but are we talking a few years? Are we talking decade? What sort of time frame would you think? It I don't think we're talking a decade. I don't think it's going to take that long. I mean, how long's a piece of string? To use a lovely rhetorical question back at you, but it, as we've seen with COVID, things slip dates, planned dates, target dates slip. And so there is going to be a certain amount of how long once a consultation is done, uh, has been conducted, will it then take to review the outcomes, write it up, put forward proposals? That one's in Department of Health hands, not in FPA or or RCP hands or even GMC hands. So it there are lots of variables in there which, as individual organisations, will have their own timeframes and disclaimer time. This is all subject to Department of Health approval, other body approvals. This is not something I've got any particular control sure. or insight over. But I think it's probably important to just keep in mind that process is set out. We know the process that it all has to go through. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, my head's spinning with all of this detail. I'm sure it will pose some thoughts and some questions for physician associates who are working at the moment. If they've got ideas, thoughts, concerns, questions about this, about prescribing, what's the best way for them to voice those opinions? I think drop an email to the FPA as as the the Department of Health has asked the FPA to take on this work of the case of need. Uh, clearly, it's going to be open to consultation once regulations in and that proposal is going forward. Um, on a purely selfish perspective, I'm going to have a uh, a survey on prescribing needs for PAs to complete for my PhD coming out in the next six months once ethical approvals all been sorted and everything. So. Do please voice your opinions through that, because that would be very helpful to get that out there. Perfect. Neil, thanks so much for coming on the PA podcast today. I really appreciate you giving up so much time to explain this really complicated topic. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope that has given you some useful things to think about in terms of prescribing rights for physician associates. If you'd like to get in contact with me, I'm on social media at PA Podcast UK across Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.
listening to the Precision Associate Podcast.